Welcome to Labor Law Radio. I'm your host, Michael Tracy, attorney at law. And here for the next hour, we're going to talk about uh, more labor and employment issues in California. For my radio listeners, unfortunately, this is probably the last broadcast that we will have on the radio for a while. We will still be going on with the uh, podcast. You can subscribe to them on my website, www.laborlawradio.com. Also, if you have questions or comments, you can still submit them there. I will still address them in my podcast, but I don't. Uh, will not be continuing doing a radio broadcast for the foreseeable future. The reason is that uh, producing one-hour weekly shows takes a good amount of time. I am a practicing attorney. I have a fairly fairly heavy caseload as it is. I was supposed to go to trial on Monday. Uh, that one looks like it's going to settle. I've got another trial two weeks after that, and pretty much uh, trials scheduled out every two weeks up through March. So a lot of these settle before they come in. There's a lot of work that goes into it. In any case, at this point in uh, my professional career, I'm a little too busy to do one-hour weekly radio broadcast. These things actually take a good amount of work. I will continue to do the podcast, which are in a much more flexible format. They don't have to be one hour. I can sort of focus on one particular issue and will do a shorter variations that are more focused to questions that people have or various issues or news items that come up. So we've got a couple hundred uh, subscribers to the podcast. You can find it on iTunes. If you search for a labor law or Michael Tracy or something like that, you can go to the website and sub- subscribe to it directly, the laborlawradio.com website. So that's sort of what's uh, going on with the show. This show, the, these two segments, I'm going to talk about uh, two main pieces of, uh, of labor law. The first one is something that's been going on for a long, long time and nothing ever happens with it. It's a very common problem in California. It's a very common problem throughout the United States. And in fact, for this area, the law in California is almost identical to the law in the rest of the United States. And interestingly enough, it is one that never or very rarely gets enforced. And that is the problem of unpaid internships. That is these interns that are essentially performing work for a company and aren't getting paid for it. It is a minimum wage violation. Uh, And we'll talk about what is a legitimate unpaid internship. There certainly are legitimate unpaid internships out there, but there's a lot of illegitimate, illegal unpaid internships that go on out there. Uh, So we'll talk about that. The first uh, half hour here after I cover a few minor uh, issues here and there. The second thing we're going to talk about is a major change in the law. If you've listened to this show in the past, you've heard me go on and on and on about overtime in the IT and computer programming fields, how much unpaid illegal unpaid overtime there is out there and how the law protects these employees. Now, the law is going to change in 2008. It's going to change in a major way. What I'm going to talk about is what that change is going to be in 2008, exactly how it's going to affect these sectors, and what I think the end result of this change in the law is going to be. And I don't think it's going to be what most people expect. I've written about this on my blog on on the uh, website for those of you who are up on it. This is a fairly hot topic uh, just passed uh, the California legislature. Uh, the Terminator, uh, the governor signed it into law uh, just a couple weeks ago. So we'll go into that in the second half. A very interesting thing, especially if you're a regular listener on the show and you've heard me talk about it a lot in the past. Um, it, it is a big change in it, and I think it will shake up uh, at least the legal field in this area for the, uh, for the next couple years. So those are the two main subjects. I just want to go into 
uh, a topic here of meal breaks again. Much like the computer professional exemption, when there's a change in the law, suddenly everybody becomes aware of it. Prior to the Murphy versus Kenneth Cole case, which we discussed about on this show and was a, a fairly widely publicized issue, which decided that meal breaks are wages and you can go back for a period of up to four years in order to claim those, suddenly the number of people calling us about these meal breaks probably tripled or even quadrupled. You know, And I've done the statistics. It's coming up the end of the year. And I looked sort of how much time I spend on this show and, and how much time I spend answering questions. And I sort of did an, an audit of my email log. And in the past year, I have answered over 1,000 questions. It was like 1,086 questions that I have answered for, for users, you know, uh, listeners or people who come to my website. Uh, obviously, the vast majority of those do not pursue litigation. Uh, a lot of them do have great cases, but for whatever reason, they choose not to. So I, I do spend a lot of time talking about these things with various issues, and so I get a lot of these questions about meal breaks. So I want to talk uh, to those people who are submitting those uh, those questions. The big question is when you have to take your meal break. California law says if you work more than five hours and you don't get your meal break, you're entitled to one additional hour's pay. The question is, is let's say you work a nine-hour shift or an eight-hour shift, but you take your meal break after the sixth hour or in the seventh hour. Is that legal? I'll answer that in a second, and the answer is a typical attorney answer. Maybe. And I'll tell you why and why I can't give you a straight answer to this. I'll give you what my opinion is. My opinion is that's illegal. You're entitled to one hour's pay. But what happened with Murphy versus Kenneth Cole is the California Supreme Court said these meals are wages and you can back can go back for four years. For whatever reason, there's been a lot of judicial hostility towards that decision. That is, the lower court judges didn't just roll over and say, oh, great, now California employees have a, have a marvelous way to enforce their rights to mandatory meal breaks. What they said is, okay, great, we heard you, Supreme Court. It can go back four years. But we're going to interpret these meal breaks in the most strict fashion, in the most employer-friendly fa fashion that there is on the planet. And there's been a number of decisions that have come down against employees on this issue. And they, they come into two classes. The first is what it means to provide a meal break. The law requires that the employer provide a meal break. The traditional interpretation of that means that the employee actually take the break. Otherwise, it would simply, the employer could say, well, I provided it and they didn't take it. But that's the opinion that some courts are, in fact, a lot of courts are now taking. That provide simply means that the employer has to authorize it. Say that it's okay for you to take the meal break, but if you don't want to, then that's fine as well. You don't get any penalty. Well, the problem with that interpretation is that the employer is almost always going to say, well, sure, they were allowed to take their break. They just chose to work through it to get more work done, to be more efficient, to finish up that big project. For whatever reason, they chose to work through it. And we know they chose to work through it because, look, here's some policy in one of our, the back page of our employee manual in very fine print that says, oh, you can always take a meal break if you want. So clearly, if they wanted to, they would have availed themselves to our generous meal break policy and taken that meal break. They chose not to. We provided it. They declined it. There's no injury, no damages. We're in compliance with the law. 
So you do see courts taking that interpretation. I think ultimately it's the wrong interpretation. It basically means the law is toothless. If all you have to do is say, oh, yes, you can take the break, but if you don't want to, that's okay as well, then I think you're going to see a lot of, uh, uh, of employers do implementing that policy. Uh, the next thing that comes up is when the break needs to be taken. Uh, again, the law says after five hours, then it's, you're in violation. But a court has interpreted that to mean you're entitled to 30 minutes in a five-hour shift. That is, if your shift is between five and 10 hours, sometime in that five or 10-hour shift, you need to take a break. It could be at the nine-hour mark. It could be at the six-hour mark. It could be at the one-hour mark. It came up in a restaurant case where essentially the middle of the, the employee's shift would have been a very busy time, basically dinner time. And so what they did is they had the employees take the break almost immediately after coming on the clock. So they would come on the clock, work for basically 30 minutes, and then go on their, their meal break for 30 minutes and then work the other eight hours. Uh, the, in that case, it was like you know, seven hours at that point, seven and a half hours. So the employees sued, said that's a violation. The court said no. As long as you receive that break any time within that period, then it is a valid break. Now, that's just one court that said that. It's not clear that other courts are going to adopt it. Hopefully, the Supreme Court will pick up some of these cases on appeal and make a more favorable decision in terms of what is allowed and what isn't allowed. But right now, there's courts that are going to decide one way. There's courts that are going to decide the other way. The same thing with the provide. Some courts are going to say provide means the employee essentially has to take it. And others are going to say provide means uh, they simply have the option to take it if they so choose. So any case, that's what's going on with meal breaks. I get a lot of questions on, on those issues. And the answer is, is that it's still not clear. kind of depends which court you actually file in. The Division of Labor Standards Enforcement has been very hostile towards these meal breaks as well. They had said the statute of limitation should only go back one year. They are not being that proactive in enforcing them. So I, they haven't announced an official position on, on either of those positions, but I believe they had filed a brief in one of the cases saying that provide simply means uh, allowed to take. They, they didn't require to take it. So the, the labor board has been very hostile towards meal breaks as well. So still a lot of issues there, and that's why I keep getting the questions. I just thought I'd take a few minutes to, to talk about that here. Now, on to our main topic of this uh, segment, and that is unpaid internships. These are extremely common in California, especially in the entertainment industry, the music industry, the publishing industry, uh, any of the, uh, the, the news or media type of things seem to have internships, unpaid internships, that are in many cases illegal. They use them in the legal profession as well with these uh, law clerk positions and everything like that. But frequently, the, the law clerk positions pay very, very well for you know somebody with, with that uh, level of skill. So you, you do see a lot of interns used in the legal profession. I'll talk about some of those that are legal and some of those that aren't. Uh, but a lot of times when you see these law clerk positions, they are paid, and that makes it legal. Now, as with any position in California... The only requirement is that they pay you minimum wage. So even if they have you doing a job that's, you know, you're, you're directing the movie, they're calling you an intern, and they're paying you minimum wage to do it, um, you can't say, well, a director normally gets 
$4,000 a day, so I want $4,000 a day. You can't sue for that. You can sue for minimum wage. Now, that would be a violation of probably one of the union agreements if it was a, a union show. Uh, so that's maybe a bad example. But in any case, all you're entitled to is the um, minimum wage for your, your unpaid work. You're also entitled to liquidated damages. California does have liquidated damages for minimum wage. So what you get is minimum wage plus double that uh, as additional damages. And you can get waiting time penalties and all these other penalties. So unpaid internships can rack up a substantial number of damages very, very quickly because you're essentially minimum wage, uh, $7.50 an hour. Multiply that times two, you're essentially getting $15 an hour. It's going to go up to $8 an hour uh, come the beginning of the year. And then you essentially get 30 days pay if you're no longer in their, their employment at that rate. That adds up very, very quickly. Frequently, you don't have an overtime case because you only work you know, 10, 15, maybe 20 hours a week as an intern. But if you were working more than eight hours in a day or 40 hours in a week as an intern, then you would be entitled to, to overtime as well. You see that in some of the uh, entertainment industries, whether they're not. I mean, they're intern in name only, but you're clearly just, you know, somebody's gopher running around the set uh, delivering things and stuff like that. Um, so it also, even if they don't call the thing an intern, any unpaid work is the same thing. So I'm going to use the term intern because frequently that's what they call them, but it means any unpaid work that you do for anybody else. You see these ads out on Craigslist all the time where you're performing work for, you know, a credit in the movie. Well, the law requires that you be paid in cash or cash equivalent, a check, a direct deposit, something like that. So a credit in a movie, while well, you can contractually obligate them to do that if you, if you perform the work for them, it doesn't help them with the labor law. They're still entitled to minimum wage. Now, with that said, there are extremely few cases of people suing or going to the labor board for unpaid intern work. The reason should be pretty obvious. These interns are new to the field, and most importantly, they need that job reference. They don't want a year later to you know, have them call up this old employer and say, oh, yeah, Michael Tracy, he was the best uh, you know, intern production assistant we ever had until he sued us for unpaid overtime. That's probably not going to help advance your career in the entertainment industry, and that is why they... Uh, there are so few cases on point. There are very, very, very few published cases on unpaid internships. There's also a lot of confusion about what qualifies as an unpaid internship and what doesn't. And I want to get to the biggest myth of unpaid internships, and that is if the internship is part of school credit, you get college credit for this internship, then you don't have to be paid for it. That is a myth. It is wrong. It has absolutely no basis in law, and I have tracked it back to its source. The Division of Labor Standards Enforcement publishes an enforcement manual, basically their interpretation of the various rules, and they devote one entire paragraph to intern programs. Uh, so it's not very extensive. And what they say is that Historically, the DLSE required that in order to be exempt from the wage and hour requirements of the wage orders, the intern's training must be an essential part of an established course of an accredited school or of an institution approved by a public agency to provide training for licensee or to qualify for a skilled vocation or profession, period. It then goes on to talk about some of the other requirements 
Well, those other requirements are the keys. But employers only read that first sentence and say, well, if it's part of college credit, then they're exempt from minimum wage provisions and we are golden. We don't have to pay these people any money. Wrong. That is not the law. That's not even what the manual says. The manual goes on immediately after that to say what the other requirements are and what they get in, you know, what they, uh, you know, what the employer has to require of this program. And it's, it's pretty straightforward. The DLSE, unfortunately, you know, the Labor Board has confused this whole issue. They publish these two different opinion letters, which are basically what the Labor Board's opinion is of what requirements for internships are to be paid or not paid. But they just, they talk about, one of them lists 11 different criteria in order to determine whether it is or is not a valid internship, things such as the screening process, the advertising for the program, the uh, benefits they receive, is it a, a clinical or, I mean, it's just... That's not the law. It's just what one administrative agency's opinion of the law was back when they wrote this letter back in 1998. The law in this case is simple, and there's only been a few published cases on this, but it is very, very straightforward. If you perform work for somebody else, you're their employee. If they're employee, you're covered by the wage and hour provisions. California minimum wage, federal minimum wage, cover all employees who are working in enterprises, commercial uh, ventures, even non-commercial ventures, even if they're not for profit. Anything that is some type of business or industry and you perform work for that industry, for that business, you're their employee. You're entitled to minimum wage. You're entitled to all the protections. That's it. It's that simple. Now, the courts have said there's been a variety of factors that we can use to interpret what exactly is work, what separates, you know, a simple training program from a valid internship. And there have been a variety of these. The main criteria is whether the work, the whatever is being done, benefits the employer. It's not enough that you go shovel dirt from one side of the street to the other side of the street. Somebody, that has to be benefiting somebody. The work you have to be doing has to benefit the employer. And I'll give you a, an example here between what benefits the employer and what is purely training. Let's say I have a internship program, and it's called the Michael Tracy Jury Panel Internship Program, and I go out and get law students, and I say, you're going to sit and pretend you're a jury, and I am going to make my opening and closing arguments to you and put on a little bit of evidence. And then you're going to tell me what you think about the case as a jury. Well, that could be very educational. And if I went to the to local law school, I might be able to get them some college credit in order to participate in this jury learning program to understand the dynamics of a jury pool. I know attorneys do this, so we do this as continuing legal education. We go out and we get with a bunch of other attorneys and we sit in the jury box and we watch other attorneys put things on and we pretend we're the jury and we go through the jury dynamics so that we can understand how juries think. So definitely it's, it's something that I've done personally to enhance my, my skill in dealing with jurors and you know I could probably get a, a local college, local law college to give some college credit for it. Would that make it a legal paid internship or, or an illegal unpaid internship? The question would be, it depends what we're talking about. 
if the work benefits my law firm at all, then it's work for me. So if I get up there and I talk about, I do my opening and closing statement for the trial that I have that starts on Monday, and they tell me all about the evidence that I'm going to put on come Monday, that is work for me. It benefits me. That is my case, and I am deriving immediate benefit because I am understanding how this jury panel of these unpaid interns would respond to these, uh, you know, to this evidence. Probably not the greatest jury panel, but uh, in any case, I would have to pay them all minimum wage. That's the law. What's the other side to it? Let's say we take a hypothetical case. We say, you know, plaintiff A is suing plaintiff B for running over his dog, and I'm going to put on the evidence about how the dog was injured and all their pain and suffering that the family uh, endured, and we're going to present damages, and you guys are going to, to come back with a verdict. No real case. Plaintiff A, plaintiff B don't exist. It's not even similar to any cases that I have because I don't deal with uh, dog injury cases. So in that case, it's clear that I would simply be instructing the jury panel, my, my unpaid interns, how juries function, how trials function, how attorneys put on evidence at trial. They would be learning from it. I would be deriving no benefit whatsoever from it. And that would be a valid unpaid internship. So you see these that, you know, basically where it's entirely for the employee's benefit or the intern's benefit, those are going to be to be valid. So what the Department of Labor has done, the Federal Department of Labor, has put together six criteria that they look at to determine whether an internship is valid or not. California generally follows federal law, but the Labor Board likes to make stuff up as they go along, so they don't follow these. These are much simpler, much more clear-cut, and let me just go over this really fast. Number one, the training, even though it includes actual operations of the facilities of the employer, is similar to that which would be given in a vocational school. So in the case of my jury instruction, if you've been to law school, you probably did something like that in law school. You probably had a little jury panel uh, in one of your cases where you you know discussed how jurors operate. So even if I do it in my, my law office, it would be similar to what would be offered in terms of a school. The training is for the, the, the training is for the benefit of the intern or the trainee. Again, if it's benefiting my law office, I have to pay him. If it's just a hypothetical case, then I, I don't have to pay him. It's for the benefit of the employee, of the trainee. Number three, the trainees do not displace regular employees and work under close observation. Now, if I, you know, same thing there, if I have a whole panel of these people that I pay to listen to cases all the time and I'm replacing them with these interns, obviously that's going to be work. Obviously it's going to be benefiting me. Um, you, you see that a lot where the, it's not that these interns replace somebody that does a le legitimate job. They're not going to fire somebody and replace them with an intern. They're simply going to hire the intern and they really just look as, is this the same type of work that other people are doing? You know, if you're carrying papers around the set or if you're doing a market research or something like that, uh, you know, even if it's intellectual, so if it's market research, again, it's something that benefits the employer. If they take that market research and they give it to one of their executives and they make decisions based on that, or they review it for whatever reason, then that's benefiting the employer. That time needs to be paid for. Number four, the employer that provides the training derives no immediate advantage from the activities, and on occasion the employer's operations may actually be impeded. That's essentially what we said. The employer can't derive a benefit. It has to be for the benefit of these trainees. 
Number five, the trainees are not necessarily entitled to a job at the completion or beginning of the period. That one's kind of worthless because even if you're an employee, it doesn't mean you're guaranteed anything tomorrow. California's an at-will state. They can fire you at any time for any reason. Certainly, they can fire an intern at any time for any reason, whether they're paying him or not. Then the only question is, was it legal? Were they required to be paid? Number six, the employer and the trainee understand that the trainees are not entitled to wages for the time they spent in training. I think that one's kind of worthless as well because every unpaid intern, at least when they sign up, understands that they're not going to be paid for it. They, they aren't these really cases where the employer says, oh, I'm going to pay you minimum wage, and then they don't pay a minimum wage. You know, that would just be a breach of contract, minimum wage violation. There's nothing. Obviously, if they, if they agreed to pay them, then they would have to pay them. So that one's not really key. The main thing there are the other ones where the it has to be for the benefit of the uh, employee, of the trainee, of the intern. So another example is let's say you're reading scripts. If you're reading scripts and maybe you're learning a lot about how to break a script down, what plot elements to look for, all about uh, characters and you know plot points and all these things, great. Maybe you're learning a fabulous amount. Maybe this is the dream opportunity for you. Maybe as soon as this internship is done, Spielberg's going to pay you a million dollars to read his next script. That is irrelevant. The question is, is, is the result of your work benefiting that company? Now, there's two sides, you know, two different cases we'll discuss here. Let's say case number A, you are reading scripts based on somebody's supervision, and the ones you like, you pass on, and then your boss rereads those and then picks up the ones that they like and send them off, and they maybe option them or they, they discuss them and, and do something with those scripts. The ones you throw away, those are just thrown away. They figured if you didn't even like them, then, then they're definitely no good. That is work. You have to be paid for it. I don't care how much instruction they give you. I don't care how much college credit you get for it. I don't care how great it's going to look on your resume. That is work, and you need to be paid for it. Let's look at the flip side. Doing the exact same thing, the exact same supervision at the exact same company, everything's the same, except the company has already decided that all of these scripts are worthless. They're garbage. They're not going to produce them. They're not going to option them. They're not going to read them again. They're done with these scripts, but they're giving them to you to read purely for training. And then they may discuss them with you. Did you think that one was good? Did you think it was bad? Why did you think it was good? Why did you think it was bad? That's purely for your edification and purely for your benefit. That is a valid unpaid internship. Don't see too many of those out there. That's the big difference between these. It's really not as big a deal as most people think. So now I'm going to talk about why now we're starting to do something about this. At least my firm is starting to do something about it. And that is because of the Private Attorney General Act. We've talked about this before on the show. Basically, the Private Attorney General Act gives you the right to sue for other people's labor violations. It's extremely powerful, very useful, and I'm going to talk about it on the other side of the break because I am out of time. So bear with me, and we'll come back to unpaid internships and computer programmers. 